Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I'm your host, Chris Russo. Let's get started immediately as we are just trying to save as much time as we can before the summer comes to an end, but more importantly, before the NFL season comes to a start. And there's a, quite a bit to discuss before week one. First off, Jonathan Taylor placed on the physically unable to play list to start the season, which is frankly a joke to me, considering he is physically able to play. There is no trade imminent. Apparently, he will miss at least four games because he is on that list. This has been just so poorly handled, and obviously the Colts have handled this the way that you know people had said during the, the, the writer's strike, the whole thing about Paramount cutting down the trees so it makes the, the, the writers sweat more in the midst of their strike. And it's just, you know, it's just a really disappointing thing, especially because there is, he is one of the best, he's arguably the best running back in the league, and so many running backs have been disrespected now, and it's just a joke. It's a joke that he is actually, literally, he's on the physically unable to play list, and he is more than physically able to play. I don't understand it whatsoever. And he is so integral to the Colts' success. The Colts have been, for the last four years, you know, a quarterback shy of being maybe even a Super Bowl contender. And it's just been absolute mayhem, and it's a real disappointment. Speaking of the physically unable to playlist, there are a couple other notable players who will be going on there. Von Miller will miss at least four games on that list with an ACL injury. For Buffalo, will be a difficult start to their season. He is, you could still argue, even though he is the elder statesman, he is perhaps the anchor of that defense. And the Jets have obviously gotten better. New England is still a toss-up. Miami is perhaps a toss-up because of the health of Tua Tagovailoa. I don't know exactly what's going to happen there, but it's going to be a loaded AFC East, and so that's a very, very difficult loss for them. Out West, we're going to pretend that this makes sense. The, the first part makes sense. The second does not. Kyler Murray will miss at least four games on the physically unable to play list. Yet the team still cut Colt McCoy. No joke. I'm on the Arizona Cardinals website right now, and Kyler Murray is listed as the number one quarterback. There is no quarterback listed at number two. And Clayton Toon is listed at number three. So I don't know if the Cardinals are just tanking. You could argue it. And I really, I don't know, for what, for what that team has done in the last few years, for how highly touted Kyler Murray was for the fact that, that team actually reached the playoffs a couple of years ago, just a, a real lack of improvement. They never really took that, that next step after reaching the playoffs and falling to the, getting blown out by the Rams, frankly in the wild card round on en route to the Rams winning the Super Bowl. They have done nothing. And the fact that the Seahawks have gotten better than Arizona has was definitely not planned. Definitely not expected. And a credit to Pete Carroll and to Geno Smith, but really just a lot of disappointment in Arizona who, I mean, they, they, they might be ready to just draft Caleb Williams next year. That's what it seems like. That's what he was... I was reading Sports Illustrated this week, and Arizona is projected... They projected Arizona to perhaps have not only the number one, but also the number two pick in next year's draft. It's it's quite possible. And believe it or not, you might forget, but the Cardinals actually have 
Now that the Cubs have won, the Cardinals have the longest championship drought, the longest active championship drought in the four major sports leagues in North America. Just ahead of Cleveland and Sacramento Kings are way up there. But yeah, dating back to 1947 when they were the Chicago Cardinals, two homes ago. Before they played in Phoenix, before they actually, rather they played in Glendale, before they played in Tempe, before they played in Phoenix, before they played in St. Louis, going all the way back to Chicago. And, you know, going back to really poorly handled situations, Josh Jacobs does ultimately sign with the Raiders for one year and up to $12 million. I don't know how there isn't a way for the league to, to step into this, to, to say perhaps there should be a, a certain percentage of the of the budget, of the cap that, that should be allayed to each, to any given position. I think it could be done. I don't know if the Players Association would stand by it, considering every other position, considering it would just benefit running backs, but every other position would be furious. But I, I don't know. Something really has to be done. Look, you're going to pay $12 million a year, even with inflation now. That's anybody would take that. Pretty much anybody would take that. But the running back position in general is so devalued. And it's unfortunate. It is because there are that many good players. But again, it's the law of supply and demand. Supply goes up and demand goes down because there are so many quality running backs that can just be plugged into a system. I said New England kind of did this. New England, I think under Belichick, New England really instituted this. The Niners kind of did this too when they had Roger Craig and Wendell Tyler and a couple and a, and a few really good backs. But New England would always have under Belichick they, for a lot of the years they've had a three-headed monster. You go back to those first three Super Bowl teams and you look at Antoine Smith, Kevin Falk, uh, J.R. Redmond. Look at Corey Dillon number of really good backs, and it's all about depth now. That's what it usually is at the pro level. It, it's depth. So I, Josh Jacobs is still obviously a quality back. He can carry the Raiders, and he's really going to have to more. The fact that they – because Jimmy Garoppolo is not the quarterback that Derek Carr is. Look, Jimmy Garoppolo has, has played – has been more successful in the postseason and has played to a system very well, played to it well in San Francisco – I think got a little too much flack, played to it well in New England, I would argue. And Derek Carr is a better deep ball quarterback, but now that he's gone, you got Garoppolo. Let's face it, Jacobs is going to have to do more of the heavy lifting. It's absolutely true. And so $12 million, I think, for what he actually is, is rather low. Speaking of the Niners and speaking of the quarterback position, the Niners trade 2021 number three overall pick Trey Lance to the Dallas Cowboys for a fourth round pick. Dak Prescott, in my opinion, now has perhaps the least safe quarterback job in the NFL. Mike Greenberg actually said it best this week when he said that the, the truth is Trey Lance's stock is only going to go down if he does not play. Because he barely has played in two previous seasons. And so he must get playing time at some point for Dallas. Otherwise, it's not worth it. The only way that doesn't happen is if 
Dak Prescott is pretty much perfect. Even if they're winning, if if they're winning in in large part in spite of him, then they'll, they'll get an excuse. They'll use that as an excuse to bring in Trey Lance. I like that Lance's talents are hopefully finally going to be utilized. He's dealt with injuries over the last couple of years. Quarterbacks have gotten hot at the right time. Garoppolo was solid. Clearly, you know, Purdy might be their guy. But Lance was another guy who was so highly touted and perhaps, you know, some people argued could have been the number one pick. And now, two years in, we're not really sure what to judge what he is. But you're, like in San Francisco, you're putting him into a pretty good situation in Dallas where he has a very deep set of players at, at skill positions. He has one of the best, if not the best, offensive lines in football. And he has... Uh, Mike McCarthy is going to be taking over in terms of the play calling this year. That's going to be interesting to see. I don't know if he was necessarily the quarterback whisperer at any given place, Dallas or Green Bay. But Dallas is, he's going to be in a position to win. Somebody is going to be in a position to win in Dallas. And obviously, Dak Prescott's been one of the best quarterbacks in the league, but he's never played in an NFC Championship game. It's hard to believe he's entering his seventh season now but he has never played in an NFC Championship game. And you look at Tony Romo, who's a great quarterback, is Dallas's all-time leader, as a matter of fact, in, I believe, passing yards and passing touchdowns, and yet just didn't get it done. You had Troy Aikman for the last four years of his career, I think, who didn't make the NFC Championship game. They had a little bit of a rotation. They had Drew Bledsoe for a little while, who, if he, who, if he doesn't get laid out against the Jets... Or if Belichick decides to start him in the Super Bowl instead of Brady after Brady gets hurt in the AFC Championship game in 2001, I might argue Drew Bledsoe is a Hall of Fame quarterback. And yet he couldn't get it done. Dallas has had a a series of good quarterbacks, but they just haven't been able to put them over the top. And so it's a move that kind of had to be made. You need to inject some life. Remember, the Niners made the deal for Steve Young years ago. Patriots went out and drafted Garoppolo. You look at Rodgers under Favre. A lot of times you get great quarterbacks under great quarterbacks, and either they're going to go play somewhere else, the the, the younger guy, or they're going to step in. Young pushed Montana. Garoppolo pushed Brady. Rodgers pushed far for a couple of years. Young eventually took over and became a Hall of Fame quarterback in his own right. Same with Favre. Garoppolo got traded. There are rumors that Brady forced him out, but Garoppolo is on an excellent pace. He's a great quarterback. He's been to the Super Bowl. He's been to multiple NFC Championship games. And a lot of guys started out as backups. No, it sounds like an, it sounds like a oxymoron there, but it's true. First couple of years, these guys will sit. Trey Lance has done his time, and so now it's a judgment of whether Dak Prescott is going to be a guy who moves on pretty quickly or moves up. 
and elevates the Cowboys, finally, after so long, for how talented this team is, for how talented his supporting cast is. Now, it should be a concern if you are a Cowboy fan and you want Trey Lance to be the starter, that Trey Lance lost his backup job, didn't, lo- didn't even lose the starting job, didn't just lose the starting job to Brock Purdy, who obviously was fantastic, and that was another point made in Sports Illustrated this week that you could argue the Niners would have been in the Super Bowl if Brock Purdy didn't get hurt. I, I could make that argument as well. And the thing is, Lance didn't get the starting job. Probably expected. Although, Lott probably did expect him to get the backup job, which ultimately went to Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold's look, he, he's not bad. He's... He did some good things with the Jets, some good things with Carolina. But Trey Lance is expected to be better than Sam Darnold. He's expected to be a lot better than Sam Darnold. And so that really was the straw that broke the camel's back. So, if you're a Cowboy fan, you have to wonder, are you getting damaged goods? And I don't like saying that about a person, but that's kind of the... Again, it's, it's him at a, as, from a player's standpoint. But you have to wonder, if Sam Darnold beats him for a backup job, is Trey Lance really capable of leading the Dallas Cowboys, let alone any other football team? You head further south in Texas, and Houston named number two overall pick C.J. Stroud as the week one starter. Houston has, I will say, Houston has a surprising amount of depth at the QB position. Davis Mills is going to be their backup. I think he was a, you know, a decent starter for how bad Houston was, at least. Case Keenum is the third string. Case Keenum, good journeyman quarterback, obviously remembered most for a play that is really miraculous, not entirely his doing. A lot of it was Marcus Williams not playing it correctly on Stephon Diggs. That's, of course, the Minneapolis miracle. But still, very good quarterback. So Houston is going to have a good QB room. And also for C.J. Stroud to be named as the starter in Week 1 is significant, especially that considering Ohio State doesn't have a great quarterback history, at least in terms of transitioning to the pro level. But it could be the year where Houston takes a step forward. The Bears cut P.J. Walker, which I found rather interesting. Obviously, Justin Fields is going to be the guy. But it is interesting that they cut P.J. Walker because he does have a deep ball ability. He's very mobile behind the line of scrimmage. I, I just go back to the Panthers-Falcons game where he hit D.J. Moore on a deep ball that really should have won them the game if not for Moore committing the the penalty that, that caused the missed extra point. But... There is something to P.J. Walker, and I think he's capable of at least being a, a backup quarterback in this league. Looking a little more locally, at least to where I'm based, we've got a few things about Jets and Giants this week. For one, for Gang Green, Corey Davis retires after just six seasons, finished with 3,879 receiving yards, 17 touchdowns with the Jets, and of course the Tennessee Titans. Was originally noted as being away from camp for personal reasons. There were rumors abounding that he was out of shape, perhaps a bit overweight, especially for that position, even for his for his height. He's 28 years old. 
I would think if it is a weight if it is a weight issue and a shape issue, I could very well see him returning at some point. I don't know, but Corey Davis was supposed to be the the face of the receiving core when he came in was maybe the number one guy in te- in Tennessee for a team that nearly reached the Super Bowl and just didn't have the best tenure with the Jets, who have developed a very deep receiving core in that time, probably anchored by last year's Offensive Rookie of the Year in Garrett Wilson, who is just an absolute stud. And Corey Davis, obviously not a number one receiver anymore, but rather surprising, a bit surprising that his tenure with any given team is apparently coming to an end. Some good news for an older or a more veteran player for the Jets. That's Dwayne Brown at left tackle. He is cleared to return from the PUP list after his shoulder injury for the first time since training camp started. Should be interesting that the Jets' offensive line improved quite a bit, I would say, in the last couple of years, bringing in Vera Tucker, bringing in... Look, Brown is going to have to be a resource because clearly he's played a long time. He's 38. But he's been around in this league and he's going to have to be a resource for Mekhi Becton who really has also just not lived up to the hype, the expectations... And clearly, he's at an age where he is your long-term guy if he can perform. But Dwayne Brown is going to be a guy that I think Aaron Rodgers can trust at left tackle if he simply stays healthy. And it's also going to help that Rodgers is, even at his age, a still a pretty mobile quarterback still be able to move around in the pocket and we'll still be able to to create something out of nothing. On to Big Blue, the Giants make a significant move this way. I think a good value move. They get linebacker turned safety Isaiah Simmons in exchange for a seventh round pick. He declared in June that he no longer wished to play linebacker after playing four positions over his first three seasons, all with the Cardinals, most often inside linebacker and outside linebacker. He was originally a safety at Clemson, and he was picked very high up in the draft, obviously. Arizona also is trading offensive tackle Josh Jones and a seventh-rounder to Houston for a fifth-rounder after he made 11 starts last season. Of course, offensive line was a bit of an issue for... Arizona, and obviously they're in rebuilding mode, including the Murray news and the McCoy news, because Colt McCoy is a very capable backup. Arizona is clearly just playing for next year. They're playing for 2024 before 2023 has even started. The Giants getting Simmons is very significant. Their defense has 
significantly improved over the last couple of years, and that's due to Wink Martindale came in at the right time with Brian Dable, who has really just overhauled the offense with Mike Kafka. Really, scheme is what Daniel Jones needed. But defensively, in the secondary, the Giants have really improved. Simmons perhaps could play also in a nickel position. They're pretty deep in the secondary, especially now. Jason Pinnock, slated to be the starting strong safety. He had a very good preseason. Xavier McKinney back at free se- back at free safety again. Darnay Holmes and Cordell Flott at the, the nickel position right now. Dane Belton also on the roster. Nick McLeod, Bobby McCain, and Javarius Owens. Simmons could plug in very well to what seems to be a very deep secondary for the Giants. I, I didn't even bring up their corners. Of course, you have a Dory Jackson, and then they drafted Deontay Banks out of Maryland. On the offensive side of the ball, a couple of significant things happened this week. For one, tight end Tommy Sweeney had a medical event at practice on Wednesday, was under care in the training room, and the team has said that he will be placed on the reserve-slash-non-football illness list Tuesday. It was an undisclosed medical emergency. Brian Dable says, quote, he's good. He will miss at least the first four games of the regular season. The Giants are very deep at tight end, but Sweeney was a really really had a really nice preseason, especially with his former Don Bosco teammate, Tommy DeVito. DeVito hitting Sweeney for a touchdown on the road against the Lions in the first week of the preseason. DeVito, three years younger than Sweeney. Tommy DeVito also had a, a great preseason, by the way. Will probably be on the practice squad to start. I would think they're going to hold two quarterbacks. I'm not quite sure. But, yeah, difficult loss for, for the Giants with Sweeney out. Despite the fact that they have brought in Darren Waller, they will have Lawrence Cager. Chris Myrick might be out for a significant amount of time. But the Giants, Daniel Bellinger, I forgot to even mention, Giants very deep at tight end now, but still a difficult loss with Tommy Sweeney out. Giants also released former 1,000-yard back James Robinson, the former Jaguar, ahead of the Tuesday deadline. The upside is that they activate wide receiver Wandale Robinson off the PUP list. He was one of the bigger bright spots for the Giants when they were not so deep at receiver last season before he got hurt. Cole Beasley was released, but he has been signed to the practice squad. So again, the Giants have gotten much, much deeper this season. And speaking of Giants, Prince of Mukamara signed a one-day deal to retire with the Giants, played four seasons with the team to start his career, won Super Bowl forty-six against the Patriots in his rookie season, played with a number of teams, Jacksonville, Chicago, the Raiders, the Cardinals, and the Saints, recorded for his career 10 picks, 78 pass deflections, 6 forced fumbles, and 4 fumble recoveries. Really solid corner out of Nebraska who had quite an impact and quite a nice career. Now this week, unfortunately, once again, a preseason game was cut short because of an on-field injury. That was to Dolphins receiver Daywood Davis in the game against the Jaguars. He was laid out by Jacksonville linebacker Daquan Jackson. Got called for unnecessary roughness. 
Davis was face down and motionless for quite a time, was carted off the field, taken to a hospital. He is apparently okay, but the Dolphins have actually released him. They did so before the 53-player roster limit. The upside is actually he was waived with an injury settlement, which means he'll actually be paid for the time he would have missed if he made the final roster. So from a human standpoint, this might actually be a good a good scenario for him, and then you hope he makes another roster. More importantly, you hope that he improves in terms of his health. He had all movement in all of his extremities, was released from the hospital the day after the incident. And so you just hope he'll be okay. There were a few other roster moves for the Dolphins, the most significant one perhaps being that they released Miles Gaskin as, as part of nine players in their final cuts. Moving to the college gridiron briefly, Michigan offensive coordinator Sharon Moore will be suspended for week one as part of the self-imposed punishment by the school that was also, of course, leveled against Jim Harbaugh. Moore will actually be the team's acting coach against Bowling Green in week three, while Harbaugh sits for the third of third game of his four-game suspension. Moore has been the offensive coordinator or co-offensive coordinator over the last, well, now will have been three seasons with Michigan and had also served as their offensive line coach and their tight ends coach dating back to 2018. Clearly that team is so anchored by its offensive line, so that is a significant loss. Obviously, first few weeks, unless you have one big ticket game in week one, you know, generally there aren't too many significant matchups in the first four weeks. I don't think Michigan really has any. If the game he's going to be acting coach is against Bowling Green, then the the early part of their season is not of too much concern. Again, they're just trying to do it to level off whatever punishment the NCAA may or, or probably will give to them later on, apparently not until at least next apparently not till next year are they actually going to weigh and decide the punishment on Harbaugh. Moving on to baseball as we do come towards the unofficial end of summer. Labor Day, but we still have a little more than a month of the regular season to play. Shohei Otani hit his Major League leading 44th home run this past week, but also stepped off the mound in the second inning last Wednesday due to a UCL tear. He will not pitch again this season. However, he will continue to play as a DH. The Angels very much on the, the outside looking in at this point. As I record this, the Red Sox are the closest team to the playoff picture that's outside the playoff picture, at least from a wild card standpoint, and they're still, I think, six and a half out. And so it's going to take a lot. It is theoretically possible, historically speaking, for maybe the Red Sox, maybe the Yankees, maybe the Angels to still get into the playoffs. Of course, there was 2011, there was the magical run where the Rays were nine back of Boston at the end of August. 
or beginning of September, however you put it. And the Cardinals were nine back in the wild card at the beginning of September, of course, went on to win the World Series. Crazy comebacks have happened before, but this is significant. They're losing their best pitcher. And it could be the last time he pitches for the Angels, who have apparently put everybody on waivers. It's really just kind of sad for the fan base to to see that, despite having two of the best players in the world. And just seeing this continued mediocrity, if you can even say mediocrity. They haven't made the playoffs in nine years, but for how good those two guys are and for how good that roster should be around them, it's been a major disappointment. You can't say enough to a major disappointment for a lot of different things, but for for Angel fans. The upside, well, the upside for the Angels, I suppose, is that it could lower his price going into the offseason and going into free agency could be rather significant, could be the reason he returns to the Angels. Maybe some teams don't want to take as much of a risk on him, throw as much money or as many years at him. And so that ultimately, especially because the Angels probably aren't making the playoffs anyway, even though there is a chance, this may, in a way, actually help them. It's It depends on the extent of the damage. That's going to be the biggest thing. The Angels were looking at multiple doctors, but it looks like that's, that's what it will be. Here on the East Coast, Aaron Judge recorded his first, I'm surprised, his first career three-homer game en route to a 9-1 Yankee win. He also had seven RBIs in that game against the Nationals, snapping a nine-game losing streak, their longest since 1995, and what would have been their longest losing streak since 1913, when they were still called the New York Highlanders, as a matter of fact, still played in Manhattan, as a matter of fact, at, at if not the Polo Grounds, they may have still played at Hilltop Park at that point. In that game, Washington right fielder Stone Garrett severely injured his left leg, crashing into the wall in an unsuccessful attempt to rob D.J. LeMahieu of a home run. Uh, Judge also homered in his first at-bat in Wednesday's rubber match. By the way, he has been very hot as of late. And if he had played a full season, he actually would have been on pace to hit 50-some-odd home runs at least. And if if he had not been out for two months, he might be on pace to break his record right now. But, of course, he'll probably finish in the 30-35 home run range. Still remarkable for a guy who missed, who's going to probably have missed two-thirds of the season or so. But, of course, it is certainly not all been good for the Yankees. Probably good for Yankee fans in that they released Josh Donaldson after under two seasons and a batting average under 150. This trade, honestly, should have never been made. I think I, I think I said this at the time. It's one of the worst, it's one of the worst, even though there were some positives to it, it was one of the worst trades that that the Yankees have made under Brian Cashman. Considering Donaldson's performance, for one thing, his attitude and his, his history, his history of just alienating a lot of fans, 
with some of his actions, but just inconsistency was, you know, this trade should not have been made from a Yankee standpoint. Plus the fact the Yankees shipped a very quality and very well-liked third baseman in Gio Urshela to Minnesota. They did trade away Gary Sanchez, who, you know, seemingly did not have the best work ethic for the Yankees. They got Isaiah kind of for back, who's been honestly a pretty a pretty good infielder, a pretty good infielder and outfielder at times. But, you know, speaking of that kind of center field spot, the Yankees waived Harrison Bader. Despite the fact that he ultimately played on Tuesday in Detroit, he, by the way, found out, apparently found out while watching ESPN and eating lunch. So that's, that's a nice thing to hear, clearly. And, you know, I, look, this may be in order to determine his value for a possible sign-and-trade during the offseason. He is a free agent. But it's, it's just not a move that makes sense to me. I don't understand how they can really, even if they do go into a rebuild, I wouldn't understand letting go of Bader because he is still fairly young. He's an excellent defensive outfielder. He's a great base runner, really injects a lot of life into the team. There is the, you know, the personal aspect for Bader where he is from Westchester, grew up a Yankee fan. But from an on-field standpoint, it would not make sense to trade him. He is one of the last reasons that the Yankees have faltered the way they have. Across town, the Mets have made a move that is long overdue. They will retire... Doc Gooden's number 16, and Daryl Strawberry's number 18 next season. These are two guys who, look, unfortunately their careers were derailed by by drug use, drug addiction, something that was really just rampant throughout the Mets clubhouse in the 1980s, and that really hurt that team, really helped them from, really prevented them from doing more as players, but also as, as people, of course. Two guys who, you know, it seems, have, have turned their lives around, fortunately. But this was something that was long overdue. Doc Gooden had one of the best years a pitcher has ever had in 1985. He went 24-4 with a 1.53 ERA, both leading the major leagues. 16 complete games. That was the most in the NL, and the most innings in the NL, 276 and two-thirds, also struck out 268 batters. That's the most in baseball. Had struck out 276 the year before. That was also the most in baseball. Won Rookie of the Year in 1984, won Cy Young in 1985, finished top five in MVP voting in that 85 season, made the All-Star team three times, rather four times with the Mets, finished top 10 in Cy Young voting each of his first four years and five times in his first seven seasons. For his career with the Mets, 157-85, and 85, a 3.10 ERA, 67 complete games, 23 shutouts, over 2,100 innings, and over 1,800 strikeouts. Believe it or not, never won a playoff game. I, I was hard to be, that was hard to believe for me 
And that includes not just his Mets tenure, but his time with the Yankees and with Cleveland. And he won a couple of titles with the Yankees, but did pitch to a 1.06 ERA, gave up two runs over 17 innings in the 1986 NLCS against the Astros, pitched to a, a sub-3 ERA in three games against the Dodgers in a losing effort in the 1988 NLCS. Uh, of course, eventually also threw a no-hitter with the Yankees, but is perhaps the best Met pitcher not named Tom Seaver. He is their all-time leader in win percentage among pitchers, Second in career wins for the Mets. Second in a lot of categories in terms of pitching. And for his career, 194 wins at 3.51 ERA, 2,800 innings. Really just one of the most dominant pitchers of his era. And as for Daryl Strawberry, equally important to that 1986 World Championship team and and a Met team that very well could have won the World Series in 1988. Daryl Strawberry spent eight years with the Mets, led the National League in home runs in 1988, the year the Mets won the, one of the years the Mets won the National League East, led the majors with 39 home runs. That was his second straight year he hit 39 home runs, by the way. Hit 35 or more each of his last four seasons with the Mets and 100 RBIs or more in each of those seasons. Also led the NL in slugging OPS and OPS Plus in 1988 finished second in MVP voting. He was an all-star in seven of his eight seasons with the Mets, and the other season, he won Rookie of the Year. He finished top 10 in MVP voting three times in his last four years with the Mets, four in five overall, including his first year with the Dodgers. Won two Silver Sluggers with the Mets. Perhaps the biggest thing, he is the Mets' all-time leader in home runs with 200 and 52. David Wright, just short of that, by the way, with 242. And this is just in eight seasons with the Mets out of his 17 total. Another guy whose career was derailed, at least for quite some time, due to drug use, but was perhaps the most important player, at least position player, you could argue, for the Mets in the 1986 team, which in part because the Mets have not won the World Series since, but a team that really lives on. But again, a team that was dominant well over 100 wins, just dominant for its time. And very, very well regarded by Met fans, just idolized by Met fans. And, you know, I said after they retired Keith Hernandez's number, and, and, as a surprise, Willie Mays' number, that there were a lot of guys who did not get their number retired in general, but also, you know, that it could have been done when the Wilpons were owning the team, or, or at least the, the primary owners of the team. But now that Steve Cohen has come in, they've done it for Hernandez, Willie Mays. I did not realize there was a long promise from Joan Payson, the original owner, to retire his number. Finally, it's being done for Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. I've said, David Wright, it's going to happen. John Franco, it probably should happen. Ed Cranepool, it probably should happen. I mean, there are other guys. I mean, you can make an argument for 
Tug McGraw, perhaps. Gary Carter is another one. There are a number of Mets who could still have their number retired. You can, you know, give them flack all they want. A lot of people have said about the Yankees that, oh, they retired too many numbers. You know, it's, there are a number of high-level, high-quality players who have had that much of an impact on a franchise that I don't think a number retirement is too much of a stretch for for lots of it happens it happens sometimes franchises within baseball within heck even within the the, the Yankee organization or what because Yankees and the Montreal Canadiens they probably do it the most it happens but there's a level of excellence to it and the Mets do have a career level of excellence for a number of players that that should be on that list and so a precedent being set once again. As for current players, Edwin Diaz has his first bullpen session since right knee surgery. He aims to return this season. Obviously, perfect timing for the Mets. Really just a a shame that Edwin Diaz had to start his season that way, if he even really had a season. But it's a good sign for the Mets if he's able to come back this year, they're probably not going to be competing for a playoff spot. But I remember 10, 15 years ago, Billy Wagner coming in after being out for God, at least a year. And it was rather surprising. And it's just something that could just turn you on for the next year. It's a good start. And you can at least say you pitched in a few games. And if Edwin Diaz is healthy... He is perhaps the best closer in baseball. Also in the NL East, Steven Strasburg is reportedly planning to retire. He has not pitched this season. Appeared once last year after thoracic outlet syndrome surgery in 2021. He likely closes his 13-year career with a 113-62 and record, a 3.24 ERA, 1,723 strikeouts, three all-star appearances, a World Series title, World Series MVP award, and a record for the fastest pitcher by innings to 1,500 Ks. The best pitcher in the history of the franchise, at least since they have moved to Washington, if not going back to their years in Montreal. And so, a guy who definitely paid off for a number one pick. Last thing, baseball-wise, Mookie Betts, named NL Player of the Week, with slashes of 615, 655, and 885. Adam Duvall of the Sox, winning, let me clarify, Red Sox, winning American League Player of the Week, five home runs, 12 runs batted in, a 1689 OPS. Some local news for hockey. Alexi Lafreniere signs a two-year, $4.65 million deal to stay with the Rangers. He recorded career highs in assists and points, 39 points last year in 81 games played. Obviously, a letdown in the postseason for that kid line. But under Peter Laviolette, Lafreniere, Capococco, and Philip Heedle are expected to get more playing time, and the Rangers do lock him up for a couple of years. That's significant, had to have been done. The Rangers also hire Hockey Hall of Famer Angela Ruggiero as Hockey Operations Advisor. Brianna Stewart continues to break records in her first year with the Liberty, breaking the team's single-season scoring record 
Picked up 24 points Thursday night for the Liberty as they came back from down 20 in the second half to beat the Connecticut Sun on the road in OT, 95-90. Alyssa Thomas of Connecticut, by the way, broke the league record with 24 double-doubles in a season. As New York seems to be just going head-to-head continually with the Las Vegas Aces for the moniker of best squad in the league. Stewart, by the way, finished the game with 747 points for the regular season to that point. Some significant news on the men's side from the FIBA World Cup. Defending Olympic silver medalist France falls to Latvia. 88-86, that eliminates the French from medal contention. Evan Fournier commented this week on the comments of American sprinter Noah Lyles, who said NBA champions shouldn't be considered, quote-unquote, world champions. Now, look, I've, I've always wondered this, why NBA champions, MLB, World Series champions, Super Bowl champions, Stanley Cup champions, maybe not Stanley Cup champions said so much, but the other three, I would say, why are there, cons- why are there considered world champions? Why people say that? Now, look, it is... Accurate. Lyle's comments are accurate in considering the league is restricted to two countries, mostly one, and that goes for any of the four major sports leagues in North America. So these are accurate comments, but it just depends on the way you interpret them, because the flip side is those are all the best leagues in the world. Major League Baseball is the best league for baseball. The National Football League is undoubtedly the best league for what it may be considered American football or gridiron football. The NBA is the best league for basketball, and the National Hockey League might actually be the most international of those four leagues, considering they have seven Canadian teams and it's a Canadian sport. But the NHL is definitely the best hockey league in the world, and it's not even close when it comes to any of these leagues. The, the other thing with, with this is... You know, I agree with with Lyles to an extent, and I agree with Fournier to an extent, but I think the fact that Fournier supported that comment could translate, not in my opinion, but seriously, I think other people might see it as Fournier is being a bit of a sore loser because it comes just after France's loss. Again, I think is, you know, I think the comments are valid, very valid, as a matter of fact. It's just depending on how you interpret them. Lyles also especially has a right to to speak about this because, you know, you think about it, this is an Olympic sport. You think of Olympic sports, you don't think of hockey or basketball or, or baseball first and foremost. You think of figure skating, skiing, gymnastics, and track and field. Track and field of course, is a big one. It's a sport where you usually compete. You know, you don't really compete in a league necessarily. You just compete on a national level or or a local level or an international level, and that's that's where it's most important. You think about it. You think a player would rather win an NBA championship or an Olympic gold? Most players would probably say they'd win an NBA, They'd rather have an NBA championship. That's that's the difference. 
that's the difference between Lyles winning a tournament, you know, some sort of local race, and winning Olympic gold. The largest event in his sport is the Olympics. Largest event in basketball? Probably the NBA Finals. So a, a lot of a lot of people are correct and a lot of people are incorrect here. It's a very, it's a gray area for sure. Okay, now to one of the coolest stories of the week. And that is Joanne Carner. If you don't know Joanne Carner, she recorded 43 victories on the LPGA Tour and was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 1982. She is 84 years old. Last year, last year, she decided to pretty much hang it up on the senior tour after back-to-back days of shooting her age. She came back this year, and she did it again. She's 84 years old. She got an eight. She shot an 80, two-time U.S. Women's Open champion, and I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever if she's back next year. Shot an 80 at the U.S. Women's Senior Open this year. One of the feel-good stories of the week, and something I definitely just wanted to to bring up. Victor Hovland won the Tour Championship by five strokes to collect an $18 million bonus, shooting 27 under overall. He's the third youngest player ever to win the FedEx Cup. Brooks Kepka was named by Captain Zach Johnson to the U.S.'s Ryder Cup team for next month's tournament in Italy. He will join Colin Morikawa, Justin Thomas, Ricky Fowler, Jordan Spieth, and Sam Burns. Kepka, of course, hoisted the Wanamaker Trophy in May. Now, you might wonder how he is eligible to to be in the Ryder Cup, considering he's a live golfer. He's eligible through a grace period in his PGA membership. He re-upped his PGA membership before joining Liv, and so it's still active. And so he is he is eligible in that sense, in that way, to join the competition. I again I I don't agree with a lot of the you know the sports washing aspect of of live golf, but Kepka's results speak for themselves. Zach Johnson said he earned it, and from a an actual golf standpoint, he certainly did, and that in this sense is the most important thing. As the U.S. tries to win the Ryder Cup, believe it or not, trying to win the Ryder Cup on foreign soil for the first time in 30 years. And then the last story of the week, something really, really cool. There will be one major women's hockey league in North America next year. That is the PWHL, the Professional Women's Hockey League. It will launch in January. It'll be a 24-game regular season. They will have free agency and a draft in September. The league has revealed six teams for next season. Three will be in Canada, three will be in the U.S., and they will all be in NHL markets, which makes perfect sense. Montreal, Toronto, and Ottawa. Boston, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and New York City, which could mean Connecticut and New Jersey. Minneapolis-St. Paul could mean a couple other areas as well, Bloomington, etc. It is likely to run through May or June, at least for the inaugural season. It will pause for the IAHF Women's Women's World Cup in April. 
though any later seasons will run from November to May. In terms of the broadcasting, it will be exclusively online for this first season for now, and hopefully they can get a TV deal sooner than later. Rinks could this was an interesting factor. The rinks could range from junior all the way to NHL level. The other good thing is apparently there will be a lot of neutral site games, which should be good for expansion purposes because you'll be able to see who's willing to to come out and what cities will draw the most. And so I, I would anticipate if they go to Chicago, Philadelphia, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Denver maybe, there are probably, and then throughout a lot of Canada, I would say any NHL market in Canada, or beyond that perhaps, even if you go to you know, a, a larger non-NHL market within Canada, I would say even you know Thunder Bay, for example, Quebec City would be a big one, that the league could expand significantly. But again, that starts with financial support. The NHL, I don't know about financial support, but the NHL will be standing behind the PWHL and offering their support in any way possible, uh, akin to the way the NBA has supported the WNBA. Commissioner Bettman said he would not support a league unless there was only one league, and now he can finally do that. It will be the lone women's pro hockey league in North America. They have gotten some of the, the right people as well to start this thing. Brian Burke, longtime NHL executive, will help run the PWHL Players Association. The Hockey Ops Senior Vice President will be Jaina Hefford, who did mention that one of the big things with the Players Association will be working out the league's transgender policy. That's going to be a very interesting discussion. That's a very hot-button issue right now. Transgender athletes or transgender inclusion in athletics is very hot-button issue can be rather divisive, so it should be interesting for, for them to work that out. I'd like to note that, you know, if you do allow, if you don't want transgender athletes to play in any given, you know, any given league, then you are kind of assuming, you're, you're implying that you think that one gender or gender identity, etc., is better than another at sports. And it's apples and oranges. But, I mean, ultimately, we're all people. That's the most, that's the most important thing. And I, look, I don't mind it. I, I understand the concerns. But I get it. I don't think it's going to be a frequent, a, a frequent topic. I, I don't think it's going to be something that's going to come up that often in sports, except except perhaps for people on either side of the aisle who will push it into a political in issue, as, as any given person does. But I personally don't mind it. I let's just let's just enjoy the sport, whatever it is. That's that's all that matters to me. That does it for us this week. 
I wish you the best for the remainder of your summer and congratulate you on getting back to football. That does it for us this week. Thank you so much for your time. Please continue listening. Try to listen on Spotify in particular. If you can, that really helps us out. And we'll see you next time on Sports in the Waiting Room. Thank you.